welcome. My name is Caleb Cangelosi, and I am the founder of Log College Press. Uh, Log College Press is a website and a book publishing company. Uh, we are committed to uh, collecting and to reprinting the writings of and about 18th and 19th century American Presbyterians. Our little tagline uh, is, the past is not dead, primary sources are not inaccessible, and the 18th and 19th century American Presbyterians are not irrelevant. Um, if you've never heard about Log College Press before, I encourage you to go check out our website, uh, www.logcollegepress.com. This is the first time that I've tried to do uh, any sort of interview or any sort of uh, uh, video chat. And so I've got with me today, Dr. Miles Smith IV. Uh, Miles is a historian. Um, Miles, I, I was talking to you beforehand. Uh, if I do this again, if I do this uh, more than once, I, I might even start calling it call porter. Uh, tell us what a call porter is. Uh, call porter was in the 19th century, um, largely in the 19th century. I think they might have last a little bit into the early 20th as uh, sort of an itinerant book salesman uh of sorts he would go around and uh show up at your doorstep if you most people uh lived on farms at that point uh so maybe they would come to the farm sometimes they would come uh to market sometimes they would come to church doors uh at the end of a sunday afternoon in fact there was a, a some question over how religious they were because they would hawk books on the sabbath <laughs> Uh, sometimes. So that's what they were. They were itinerant book salesmen. So that's sort of what we do at Log College Press. We've got thousands of original uh, PDFs on our website uh, for download for free. Uh, we also have books that we've reprinted and are selling. You can see some of them behind me here. Uh, our most recent book, where did I put it? Um, hang on a second. Uh, most recent book that we just came out with, Presbyterianism by Samuel Miller. Uh, you can buy all these on our website. Uh, Miles uh, has just recently helped to edit the one that is about to come out as soon as uh, we get it all wrapped up. It's uh, by William Swan Plummer. It's entitled um, The Impeccable, uh, referring to the person and the sinlessness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So looking forward to that, uh, that book coming out. Miles, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a historian, originally from North Carolina. Uh, Tell us about yourself. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm from Salisbury, North Carolina, uh, was where I was reared. I uh, went to college in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, did my PhD in Texas at TCU, uh, taught uh, at a few places. Uh, I'll be, um, in July, I'll be uh, taking a job up in Michigan at Hillsdale College. So uh, I, am, I am a teacher first, but I love uh, to read about uh, history, not just political, social, intellectual, but also religious history. Uh, and so uh, for those of us interested in religious history, Log College Press is an amazing resource. Uh, I want to put in a plug for it because I'm on the page all the time. Uh, so uh, that's kind of uh, who I am professionally. I got interested in history because I grew up in sort of an older town in the South. Uh, my hometown was founded in the 1750s, um, settled in the 1730s, founded as a as a town in the 1750s. And so you just kind of lived with it. Uh, when I moved to Charleston to go to college, you live with history all the time there. The College of Charleston's right downtown and all the historic buildings. And so it's kind of hard to get away from. Uh, I found out that I liked history and that I was at least okay at it uh, in school. So I uh, got a PhD and 
uh, God was very good to me. I got, I got, I managed to get jobs too. So, uh, which is those two don't always go together. So, uh, anyway, that's how I ended up, uh, here talking, talking to you, uh, Reverend Cangelosi. So that's great. Well, uh, one of the things that, that we're about at law college press is primary sources. Uh, and we want to make them as available as we can for researchers, for pastors, for Christians in general, for academics, for non-academics, uh, to, to just have them there on the site. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to ask you as a historian, uh, just talk briefly about why are primary sources important? Um, and then how do you recommend your students read them and interact with them? What, what advice can you give to folks who are browsing our site and coming across a lot of different types of primary sources? Yeah, that's a great question. The first thing I'd say is primary sources are important, one, because they're primary, meaning they're written by the people who were kind of there uh, at a given event or be it political, religious, social, whatever. It's the people who saw it. So they're the closest thing you have to an eyewitness. Uh, and so they're in some ways uh, the most reliable. Um, in other ways, they're not. You can't, we can't always trust narrators. But once we kind of figure out, uh, you know, who's, who's trustworthy and, and, and who's not, primary sources become essential. They're the only way we can really write history uh, is by engaging them. Another reason they're important is because they're far more accessible, especially the sources on a site like Log College Press, than we tend to assume. We have this idea that something written before, you know, like five minutes ago, we're not going to be able to understand it. Uh, I think the important thing to realize is not every historic document is written in Shakespearean uh, or Jacobite English. You can understand these sources. They're written by people who aren't so different than us at all. They have a lot of the same fears and concerns, same loves, same joys that we do. And so when they're writing them, they're actually pretty easy to understand. Uh, you can read someone writing in the 1820s, you know, 200 years ago now, and actually see, wow, it's kind of some of the same things I think about a given situation. There's differences too, but they're far more accessible and readable and useful than we, I think, in our minds give them credit for a lot of times. Yeah, I appreciate that. And you think about uh, just, it does remind us, uh, like you said, that, that believers in uh, previous centuries uh, are not that different than we are. Same struggles, uh, same issues. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about uh, one particular believer, Pastor George Dodd Armstrong, who went through something uh, very similar to what we're going through right now in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic. He went through a yellow fever uh, epidemic and lived to write about it. Um, and so let, let me introduce George Armstrong for our, our viewers. He was born in 1813 uh, and he died in 1899, uh, born in New Jersey. Uh, he was one of 10 kids born to a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, he was a graduate of Princeton in 19, 19, 1832. Uh, and then he moved to Richmond, where his brother, William, was the pastor of First Pres. Richmond had uh, followed John Holt Rice, uh, one of the, the founding professors at Union Theological Seminary. Uh, while he was in Richmond, he taught. In 1836, he started at Union Theological Seminary. Armstrong did. Uh, he finished there. Uh, he was licensed to preach in 1838, but interestingly, uh, he became a chemistry and a mechanics professor at the Washington College, eventually known as Washington and Lee, uh, there in Lexington, Virginia. 
It wasn't until 1851 uh, that he was, uh, took his first call. Uh, he was eventually, in 1843, ordained as an evangelist, but 1851 is when he became the pastor of First Pres Norfolk, and he remained the pastor of that church, his only church that he pastored for 40 years, uh, so until 1891, uh, when he retired after 40 years. Uh, he wrote several books, and you can find uh, his page on our website uh, with all the books that, that we have collected by him. And so the one that we're wanting to talk about today uh, is uh, the book that he wrote uh, on the yellow fever uh, epidemic, uh, which was called Summer of the Pestilence. Um, and you have spent some time in the Virginia Beach, Norfolk area. Anything that you can add to Armstrong's life that you might have learned while you were there or through your own reading? Yeah, I, I actually learned a few things about him. Um, <clears throat> he, uh, his pastorate um, is in my former hometown of Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and I lived just around the block from the church. Um, and so there's kind of a lot of little local lore. Uh, the, the yellow fever epidemic is outside of a military event, the biggest thing to ever happen in Norfolk. And the imprint of, um, of that is still, <clears throat> still there. Uh, Arm, Armstrong was a known as an ev ev evangelical. He was pretty popular in town. He was the guy who sort of got everybody together. So he was actually pretty ironic. Um, he wasn't uh, particularly sectarian. Um, he had close friendships with all the Protestant pastors. He actually knew and we're pretty sure dined with uh, the AME pastor uh, as well um, in Norfolk. So he's maybe a little bit more willing to accept African-Americans into his home than some other Presbyterians at the time, at least on equal terms. Um, Which so is interesting <laughs> since he wrote a book uh, defending the Christian doctrine of slavery. Yeah, he, uh, he, so. Um, he's very, he's very much that kind of odd, uh, pro-slavery yet, um, sort of sees a place for the black church. Um, and so, and there's a real tension between, uh, presidents who did and didn't in the era. Uh, John Gerardo is the most famous one who did, but other people were more circumspect, especially in this area of Virginia. Uh, when he takes his pastorate in 1851, it's only been at that point, uh, just under 20 years since the largest uh, slave rebellion in U.S. history happened two counties over in mm. Southampton County. So Norfolk's about 55 miles from uh, 50, 55 miles from where Nat Turner's rebellion happened. So it was really in people's minds. It's one of the reasons why a lot of people defend slavery. They're out of fear. Um, a great book, if anybody wants to read about this, is Carl Paulus's a book on fear, uh, which motivated religious and non-religious people. Um, so uh, Carl's not a Presbyterian, but it's a good book uh, if anybody wants yeah. to understand fear. So, <clears throat> so um, let's talk about this book that he wrote on the yellow fever epidemic. Uh, I was interested to see that he writes this book, uh, and at first he didn't want to write it. He talks about uh, how I think he might have been asked to write it, but he didn't want to, uh, because as we'll talk a little bit later, he lost four uh, of his own family members in this epidemic, and it was it was just too hard to write about. Uh, but then he realized that uh, he needed to write about it in part because he uh, he knew that it was going to spread uh, northward, and he wanted to to give an, give a warning, uh, relate the history, and he wrote it in a series of letters. 
uh, I think to William Maxwell, was it? Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that, that was interesting to me, sort of the, the context, the setting, why he wrote this book. Yeah, so two interesting things that, uh, as a historian, you kind of recognize is the book's written pretty quick. Um, it's, it's not a long labor of love. It's essentially a series of letters that are patched together. Um, pretty well done, though. They, they, um, that's probably done by the publisher. Um, and it's published in the North. It's published in New York City uh, or Philadelphia. I can't remember, but it's a northern publisher, um, which is also unique. There weren't that many publishers in the South, but there are two in Richmond hmm. that he might have used. So the fact that he publishes it up north is telling. Another thing that's really interesting is um, the fact that uh, it's published quickly. Not only is it written quickly, but it's published quickly. It's published by the winter of 1855, 1856. And you got to think about this in the 1850s. Time doesn't move as fast um, then as it did for us. So he writes it quickly. It's published quickly. So somebody wants to get this book out. And there's a real question about who, who is that? It's probably not him. Um, most likely there's some feeling that it's uh, Presbyterians in Richmond who are communicating with Presbyterians in Baltimore. Okay. Who want to get this thing out there. So uh, lots of, a couple letters you can read, not nothing real, um, hard and fast, but the, all these guys are talking. Yeah. So what are some of the things that stick out to you as you read this book, uh, particularly in light of our own uh, pandemic that we're going through now? Um, so he doesn't Jesus juke anything. That's probably the most interesting thing. He's not really concerned about soul winning with this particular volume. He's trying to write as much as he can, like a journalist or even a scientist. Yeah, uh, he's got a lot of things to say about how he's praying for people, about how um, he's thinking about them. Uh, he's worried about people's souls, but he's not really preaching in this book. Um, it's very much the work of a man who is chronicling something he's trying to be pretty clinically precise about. That's the first thing you notice is that this is a pastor who has very passionate beliefs about the gospel. If you read his other stuff, he's, he's not shy about that, but this work has none of that. It's almost entirely absent. So he's really a guy who's trying to be a chronicler. And in many ways, that's pretty admirable because by that time he's relatively well-known. He could have probably made a lot more money out of sensationalizing, but he doesn't sensationalize it. And yet it's still that sensational for us to read 160 some years later because what's happening is just mind-boggling. Uh, even in a time of pandemic, uh, you read it and you're like, oh my goodness, that's yeah. kind of nuts. So the first thing you note is that he doesn't over-spiritualize anything. No Jesus jukes. Uh, and then he actually doesn't use particularly sensational language um, in this book. It's fairly flat uh, what he uses, but it's still so compelling. Uh, I read the whole thing. I actually I couldn't put it down. I, I uh, just kind of it's incredible what actually happened there in the Hampton Roads. Well, the and the the format of, of writing by letters is a like that's part of the page turning nature of it is that he's telling these letters and he'll tell you you know here's what happened this week and then the next letter is here's what happened this week or even I think at one point he said I just wrote you yesterday but so much has happened today I've got to write you again. Yeah, and, and the uh, letters are 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 not at a sort of systemic intervals. Uh, right. One will go 20 days, one will go two days. I think what's compelling about that is uh, they're keeping track of things as much as they can, 
in real time with their epidemic, much like we're trying to do with our own. And so some days are crazier than others. And so that kind of works out how he communicates. And as the, uh, you said, the scientist in him and the chemist, uh, it's, it's so interesting to hear him try to wrestle with, you know, they didn't know where yellow fever came from. They had some uh, different theories, but, you know, at the end he's talking about, uh, is this contagious or not? Um, he's trying to. Uh, she concludes rightly that it wasn't contagious. Right. Uh, yeah. So he did that right without being a scientist officially, which is pretty impressive. So Right, right. But he's trying to give descriptions of symptoms, you know, and, and like we were saying earlier, probably so that folks up north would know, here's what to look for. Here's some of the things that this particular uh, strain of yellow fever uh, is, is doing. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely part of the, the interesting uh, facets of, of this book. Um, you said he wasn't uh, being uh, sensational and, and wasn't uh, over spiritualizing. One one thing I did notice though was that he was being uh, defensive, apologetic, uh, trying to say, "Hey, we pastors didn't leave our post. Right, uh, we there. were there." Um, and and in fact, he has this great quote on page twenty eight, uh, where he says, um, "The physician and the Christian pastor are by their profession called to minister to the sick." the dying and the afflicted, and certainly a time of pestilence when their services are most needed is no time for them to flee. The question which they should ask is not why should I stay, but why should I not stay? Uh, and no mere danger to themselves personally should enter into the decision of this question. Uh, uh, so one of the reasons he writes that um, is, and you probably couldn't get this by just reading his work, is that there had been a yellow fever epidemic in New Orleans in 1853. There's all, there had been systemic ones, but there's a big one in 1853. And a major complaint was that Protestant clergy had left the city hmm. while Roman Catholic priests had stayed in New Orleans. And so this sort of gets out. There's a book that's written on it. The army does a report on it. Um, and so he's probably, if he's interested in science, and we know he is, he's probably read, he's probably read that. And so he's making sure that no one's going to say the same thing about him. And what's funny is he's, he's actually very careful to say, oh, and of course, the Roman Catholic priests stayed too. Right. He notes that. Um, he makes a list of all the, the clergy, and he pretty much is just uh, trying to sort of very ironically say, all the Christian ministers did their job. Um, and so he's trying to be very careful. He doesn't want any sort of shame uh, put upon him like he's sort of, I think, convinced that uh, the shame of the, the Protestants in New Orleans. So Yeah, yeah. Um, what else, what else stuck out to you as you, as you read it and, he gets, and read his narrative? He gets the scale of what's going on, right? Um, he's making guesses about how many people are dying a day. And, uh, not only is he right, but he is able to sort of relate that to us, the readers in such a way that we're, you're blown away by how massive this epidemic was. And he's just actually, it's just him just trying to figure it out. You can almost get the feeling of he's working it out in his head as he's writing. Um, and so it what it's massive. Uh, the combined population of Portsmouth and Norfolk in 1855 was probably somewhere between uh, 20, 24 and 25,000 people. Okay. Um, the death count is between 3,500 and 4,000 people. Um, 
And so, and the vast majority of those are in Norfolk. Um, and probably what's kind of fascinating is that that's probably undercounted a little bit. Um, so a safe guess could be as many as 4,500 people. So you're talking about one out of five, one out of six people dying in an epidemic. Um, in a relatively concentrated area, the city of Norfolk was not geographically particularly spread out. Um, and Portsmouth is right across the Elizabeth River. So uh, it's a pretty tremendous death count, especially when you think about probably on the order of 45-ish percent of each of those cities' populations were slaves. Wow. Well, and, and so he himself, as we mentioned earlier, uh, lost uh, four members of his family, his oldest daughter, who I believe at the time was 12, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, he lost uh, his wife's sister, he lost another daughter, and then he lost his wife. Right. Um, and and the ma- in a matter of days, I think, weeks. Uh, three, uh, his wife, his sister-in-law, and his eldest daughter die in a span of 10 days. Um, and so there's kind of this sense of you think about you think about that that's you know a week and a half and boom 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 what's interesting is is that they're asking the question of are people going to die because they had essentially false recoveries um too and so it was a emotionally a gut-wrenching thing for him uh he's still going out of the house uh, as this is going on too so he's still doing his job um, as creatively as he can, as safely as he can, while he's not sure if his family is going to be alive when he gets back or not. So, well, and, you know, as a pastor living right now during COVID-19, you know, really I was thank the Lord. I haven't had anyone in my church, um, get sick, you know, have to be in a hospital, but I don't know that I could, uh, go and visit them, right. Family members are not allowed to go and see people who are sick in the hospital. Uh, and so, as I read this narrative um, and then other narratives, you know, guys like Benjamin Morgan Palmer uh, down in New Orleans in the later 1850s, you know, doing ministry to the sick, to the dying, uh, that is both uh, such an encouragement to me as a pastor. It's also, you know, given the, the, the contagious nature of our current pandemic, it's, I, I'm not able to do that, you know? And, and so that's, um, I, I miss that being able to be there with folks, you know, uh, the other tragic part about his family dying is that he tells how they were ready to leave like the next day to go see their 12 year old daughter who had gotten sick. And then they came down with it like that night. And so just the, uh, it's just jarring and, and tragic and it's important. And he, he did, <clears throat> one thing that's really interesting is, is what you just mentioned. There's a lot of false hope uh, that they encounter. They move their family to Hampton for a little bit. Hampton's across the James River uh, Delta from, from Norfolk. And so, and people think we're going to be safe. Well, the, the infection, they're not sure. Is it following us here? Are we getting it here? You think you're going to be safe one place and you're not. And then they get sort of this, this, this terrible death of a, of a 12 year old girl uh, dropped on him. And so uh, it's probably the most compelling thing about this book is how much he lives with death. Death is constant. 
uh, you know, every page, every other page, someone has died and not just someone, someone he knows. Right. In his church or. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, at the end of all this, there were 63 orphans in first Pres Norfolk, um, which is a staggering number. Can you imagine? Uh, and it's, it was a sizable church. It was probably four or 500 people at the time, uh, regularly attending. 63 orphans is a huge number for a mega church nowadays. Imagine right. it on what we would think of as just a large church. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, and that's, that's something that in reading 18th and 19th century American Presbyterians or any work from that period, uh, they lived with death. Like you said, they knew and understood death all the time, whether it was in childbirth, whether, whether it was, you know, infants dying, um, in a way that we in the 21st century just cannot fathom. Um, thankfully, right. I mean, because of medical technology, uh, and yet because they understood death in such personal ways, um, it seemed like there was a deeper grasp of the scriptures, uh, of the Christian life. Um, think of reflect on that for me. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's, they know, they know death. They don't ever get used to it, though. I think this is one of the things we almost think they got used to it. They never get used to it. One of the things at the beginning of this book, and Caleb, you've read it, so you'll recall this. Um, they kind of panic. There's a panic when everyone figures out we have a yellow epidemic, a yellow fever epidemic here. So I think rightfully so, we're quick rightfully to criticize our own society for sort of flippantly taking the health and the, 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 the medical advances we have um, maybe for granted, but they're still pretty similar to us. They freak out when people die, just like we do. They never get used to it. They ask questions like, how did this happen? Right. Just like we do. So what's interesting is as much of a difference as there is, they're also really similar to us. When the, when the yellow fever breaks out, what's the first thing everybody does? They look for who to blame. People are shocked at this happen. Is it the ship's captain? Is it the Norfolk police? Did somebody not, did somebody not quarantine? Right. That was really, really interesting. Right. They asked that question. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they, they react so differently and yet so similarly in the way we do that you find yourself uh, not comforted, but, but surprisingly, uh, feeling a little bit of solidarity for them as they walk through this thing. Cause they are surprised by it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and we can close with this, but the other question they ask uh, is not just how did this happen, but why did this happen? And, and this comes out even more in a sermon that Armstrong preaches four months after the uh, sort of the quarantine began four months after everyone scattered uh, who could and, and who wanted to, um, but it's the first time that they're able to gather as a church together. And he mentions the large number of orphans in the sermon. Unfortunately, uh, this sermon is not on our Law College Press website because we only put uh, documents on our website that we can find actual old PDFs, like from the time period, from the 18th and 19th century. And this sermon, you can find it online. It's on the uh, First Presbyterian Norf Norfolk uh, website. It's, it's a sermon entitled The Lesson of the Pestilence, uh, and it's a, a sermon on Hebrews 12.10, um, and he has uh, a paragraph that I wanted to read. Um, let me pull it up here. He says, 
Hebrews 12, 10, talking about that, that trials come, afflictions, God disciplines so that we might, uh, that, that God might enable us to partake of his holiness, that we might share his holiness. Uh, and he says this, uh, let me read. He says, Christian here, have not your own heart's utterances as you have smarted under the rod accorded with his voice from heaven in Hebrews 12. Um, Seem there not something then to whisper in our ear, fool that thou hast been to live so much for this present world, so forgetful of the great end and aim of life. And was there not the purpose formed? If God spares me, I will by his grace become more fully a partaker of his holiness. I will henceforth be more decidedly on the Lord's side, more earnest in prayer, more constant in effort, more habitually faithful and humble, sitting at Jesus's feet that, that I may learn of him. Um, and he goes on uh, just to, uh, to reflect, you know, not necessarily in the book, like as you were mentioning, that's not the place where he wanted to have this, but certainly to his people uh, in the, in the pulp, from the pulpit, in the church, he wanted to remind them that God has purposes. Uh, and one of those purposes are, is our holiness, our growth in grace. Um, and, and I imagine, have you seen that in other uh, particularly pandemic epidemic sources yeah, uh, the, the, probably the best known yellow fever epidemic that historians encounter, um, whether you're in grad school or, or in, um, or as a historian is, there's a, in 1793, there's a yellow fever epidemic that goes through Philadelphia. Hmm. Country's brand new. Uh, George Washington's president. Philadelphia is still the capital of the United States at this point. So it's been written on a good bit. Um, and one of the interesting things is you find, we assume that pastors are going to use every opportunity um, to say something, to find some reason. I think what's been really compelling is that there's typically a waiting period. They do wait. They don't just, they're not, they're pretty judicious about not trying to assign any specific sort of divine meaning to what happens in the moment. Um, some of these guys, in one particular uh, situation, a guy waited until 1795 to preach a sermon about something that had happened a year and a half earlier. So I think, I think you get the sense of there's a real reticence to uh, sort of in the moment say, this is why this is happening. Um, and, so, and four months is a pretty long time for 1855. You have the telegraph, you have a lot more modern things than you did in 1795. So, I think it's telling that they wait. Um, I also think that uh, as, as far as uh, 19th century um, pastors go, uh, Armstrong's still a little, he's a, he would be a warm fuzzy uh, for his era. He's not, uh, he's not denouncing things. Um, uh, there's a guy, uh, George McDuff, who's also on the Log College um, website who Anytime anything happened bad, he was writing mainly between 1810 and 1820. He's finding a particular societal failure. Uh, Armstrong doesn't do that. He says, look, this is, this is really at this point, something that we just as God's people need to worry about. We're not looking around and assigning blame to any other group. We've experienced affliction. God has brought this on us for a reason. So I think that that's telling. Uh, he's, really bringing it back to his people. He's being a pastor in that sermon in a really precise way. He's not being a cultural commentator. He's not being a scientist. He's not uh, engaging in political speculation, uh, which is funny because he did kind of do that in 
the Summer of Pestilence, he takes a pretty big swipe at uh, secessionist uh, in the book, uh, which is one of the interesting things uh, about it. So Armstrong, uh, he's a fascinating guy. Uh, and anybody who, who visits the book and reads all the way through it will sort of be surprised at that. Here's this yeah. pastor uh, taking a pretty, pretty big and, and open swipe at the idea of disunion. Um, but yeah. in his sermon, he doesn't really talk about politics. No, no, I appreciate you know, what you said, that he's being a pastor to his people. Uh, he is wanting to minister to them the word of God, the comfort of God. Um, I wish that we could find this sermon and have it on the website as well, uh, but at least it's available on the internet. Um, but you know, I think that's what uh, I appreciate about our website is that you're able to see these men and their writings in, in such a variety of different uh, formats and venues, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, history of this pandemic, but then also the, the sermons, the, the pastoral labors uh, of these men. And so we have so much to learn uh, from them. Uh, so, yeah. and it's, and just as a plug, one of the nice things about the, the website um, is not just that they're there, but they're, they're so varied. Um, there's so many different types of things you can find even, I mean, this isn't the only work uh, on a pastor and during an epidemic on the website. Um, and so there's, there's quite a bit there. It's a great website. Um, I know you know that, but just for people, <laughs> thing, uh, I hope they'll also uh, uh, visit as well. Uh, I find well, thanks, it super interesting. Appreciate it. Well, man, thank you so much for uh, doing this with me. Yeah, thank uh, you, so uh, if, if this goes well, we may try to do it again. Absolutely. And, uh, and so, all right, man, we'll have a, a great night and we'll, right. uh, we'll talk to you later. All right. Take care, Caleb. Bye-bye.